Um, hey, I want to do uh, two things as we start this next section. Um, uh, and I, I singled Natalie out not for any reason other than I saw you sitting there and I called you over and other IHoppers were, were talking. But uh, what I'd like you to do is I'd like, to, I'd like you to share um, with this group tonight, and I know I've put you on the spot, you have zero preparation for this, the most strategic thing you learned at this Immerse program um, related to what we're talking about tonight. How's that? Is that putting you on a spot? That's good. Okay. Um, so one thing that we talked about was um, the knowledge of God and what that looks like and understanding like the fullness of God. And so um, we talked about sin and that their kind of theory of like what happened initially of like why Adam and Eve sinned was not that that because a lot you give a lot of reasons of like, oh, and whatever. And it uh, debunks a lot of like theology or it contradicts a lot of the theology. But theirs was saying this, that the issue was that they had, that Adam and Eve, Eve had a knowledge of God problem, that they spend time with God, but not gleaning from God and knowing him. Because if they knew him, they wouldn't have sin to begin with because they would have known what he said. Um, and the whole implication was that we all have a knowledge of God problem. And that when we know God, that it's not that we're, we're following a to-do list, but that we're, we're moving into like a presence of him and with him and knowing those sorts of things so that we move out of that. But so knowing, so going along with this whole thing, I think knowing God and knowing that the power that he has and the authority that we have to be able to call out darkness and to um, kind of understand the spiritual realm in a different way um, means that we're also attacked in a different way. And I know I hadn't really shared, shared this with um, our team yet, but um, since I've been back, I've dealt with like a lot of spiritual warfare personally, and so I'm sleeping with worship music on these days. But um, um, but it's something that like we that anytime you kind of enter into that realm of understanding your authority that you have in Christ, and that it's not about your faith in God, but the faith in the authority that He's given you, um, that that essentially it's like you're you're like raiding hell, or like you're you're immediately and full front confrontation going against the devil and his plans. And so that's a really serious um, and aggressive and thing. And so there's, there's backlash from that, but um, yeah. Thank you for letting me put you on the spot. Yeah. You know, when I was a kid, uh, when I was a kid, I would, uh, there was always somebody on the playground that was bigger than you and was a bully. And bullying in those days were a little bit nicer than they are bullying today, a lot less serious. And one of the things that they would do, a bully would take, and he would, we had like these gravel playgrounds that you could play on, you know, that were great when you fell down because you got rocks and you're, you know, stuck in your skin and everything else, right? But they would take and they would take their foot and they would mark a line and they would say, this is our part of the playground. They were making territory, right? Okay. And so uh, would you turn this up just a hair on it so I don't have to put it so close to my mouth? Um, so what, what they would do is they would mark a spot there, and they say, this is ours. And then they would say, if you cross that line, we're going to what? We're going to beat you up. Okay? So what do you do if you're, you know, a fourth, fifth or grader, whatever? What do you do? You cross the line. Okay? And then what happens is, because what you're doing is you're challenging the bully. Now, what happened most of the time is you got beat up. Let's just be honest, right? You just got beat up because he had his posse and they were going to work you over. But, you know, it didn't always happen that way. You know what happens sometimes? What happens says, um, well, then and they would draw another line. They said, well, then if you cross this line, I'm going to beat you up. That's when you know you won. Can I give you that as an as a illustration here for dealing spiritual warfare? 
Satan is a bully. He wants you to believe that this territory that you want to take is his. But what you have to do is you have to be willing to cross the line. You have to be willing to go into the realm that he says is mine and take it for the kingdom of God. Do you realize that every time you share your faith, you're crossing the line? Every time you're praying for a move of God, you're crossing the line. Every time you just exercise great faith in something, you're crossing a line. Every time you, you exercise you know, repentance, every time you exercise love, every time you do that, you're crossing the line. You're saying, no, we're not going to operate by those kingdom standards. We're going to operate by the kingdom of God standards. Amen? Okay, uh, now I want to do one other thing. I'm going to have Doug come, and he's an attorney, and I want him to just talk uh, for just a minute about legal rights because that's what we're talking about here, the legal right that Satan had that he forfeited here and now that, that God has given us authority back in Jesus Christ. So, Doug, would you come and just take a minute? Briefs, briefs, they're never brief. Um, well, is this on? I think the concept that's probably good to grasp that you're, you're, you know this concept, but it's probably one that's helpful for you to understand is that we have certain rights that you live with all day long. And you know this because if you own a house, you have a right to possess it, right? You have the right to occupy your home. If you have a car, you have a right to drive it. This is your car. I own this car. You have a bank account. You have a right to withdraw your money. Okay, every one of these rights that you live with all day long, if someone tries to come and take your rights away, all of a sudden one morning you wake up and there's a whole family living in your house. They're eating your food. They're sleeping in your bed. They're feeding your dog. They're hanging out on your patio. Okay, you come home and go, what are you doing in my home? I have my rights. Okay, well, those rights are established in many different ways. You have the rights that the police could enforce because we have a criminal code and they would be trespassing. You have the rights because of your possession. You signed a contract. You got a deed. Those vested you with possessory rights. And I think what's interesting is that we as Americans, you know, I was just looking at this quickly here. We hold these truths. Tell me where this comes from. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Where's that from? Declaration of Independence, right? This is how we formed our country. And these vested fundamental rights run all the way to the core of us as Americans. So I think what Phil's just taught us, which is fascinating from this book, is that Jesus sued Satan. That's what he's saying. When he said he came as a plaintiff, he sued Satan. And what he's suing for is he said, look, you're occupying my people. And you have the right to own them because right now they've submitted to you because they've all sinned. Every time every person committed a sin, Satan owned them. That's the way I see it. He had possession over them. Jesus said, I'm going to sue you and break your rights to ownership and prove I'm the lawful owner. And the judge, which is God, said the only way you win the lawsuit is if you're perfect. So the war was on. 
He had to win the lawsuit by proving in his evidence at the judgment of the lawsuit between Satan and Jesus is that he had absolutely no sin, never bowed once. And Satan murdered an innocent man. If he'd have got him to bow one time to one sin, even compromise in the Garden of Gethsemane and throw off his humanity and become God. That wasn't the agreement. He was to live a human life, sinless, and die a man. Never sinned. And so when he presented his evidence, completely sin-free, and Satan murdered an innocent man, judgment fell on Satan, and it was the death sentence. Same thing we do, right? You sue somebody, or you have a prosecutor come after a criminal that murders your family member. We have the death penalty in this state. We sentence them to death. Jesus won the lawsuit, and Satan got sentenced to death, which means he claimed back his property, right? So he got back all of his people, and now we have absolutely no ownership by Satan. We're owned by Jesus. We are sons of God, right? There you go. Well put, well put. Much better than I could have elaborated. Thank you. Um, so now if you, if you kind of can bask in that a little bit and say, you know, now I understand a little bit more about my legal rights. Now what I want you to do is I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and I want to just teach a little bit from this, this section if I can, because it's so foundational for, for what we're really talking about here tonight. And I would just encourage you to, um, to actually take this passage Study it in some depth, and as you study it in some depth, uh, begin to just kind of underline things, put notes in there, and get this really deep in your heart, okay? So let's go to chapter 2, verse 1. And I, brethren, came to you. I did not come with excellence of speech or the wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. So what's Paul immediately doing? He's stepping back, and he's saying, I might be a smart guy. I might have a big footprint in this world. But I'm not going to do that, and I'm not going to do it for a reason. And here's, here's the reason as he begins to unfold it. But we speak of the wisdom of God in a mystery. Now, that word there is the word, the Greek word, musterion. And what it means, it means something that was hidden until the right time. That's what mystery means here. It was hidden because it wasn't yet ready to be revealed. It wasn't hidden in the sense it's mystery, ooh, that's weird, okay? Or it's a mystery that we can't figure out, or it's not even a mystery they could have really figured out earlier. This is something that God said, I'm going to hold it in mystery until exactly the right time for exactly the right purpose. So he said, we hold this, uh, this mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages. Okay, so when did God ordain this? Before he created man, before any of the ages, God said, I have a plan and I have a mystery that I'm going to hide and I'm not going to reveal it until later. So what does it say of Jesus in the Revelation? It says that he is the Lamb of God slain, where? Before the foundation of the world. Okay, so let's think about it. If we could, pen here, if we could do it like this, Okay, and here is, let's say this is time begins here, okay? 
and we're living out here. Here's the cross, okay? And it says that Jesus is the lamb slain before God created man. So God had a provision for man before man had a problem. Now let me show you how powerful that is. It never changes. Whatever problem you have, God already has a provision. Because he is the king of the universe. He is the sovereign. Amen? So um, so back here, Jesus, you say, well, I don't understand. Why would, how could he be the lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world when we know he was slain right here? Okay? Eternity is never past tense. It's always now. God dwells in what we call the eternal now. That's why he could say, I am. Because he's always present tense. I am the great I am. So there's not eternal past. There's not an eternal future. Eternity is simply now. God looks at every single event in history, the history of man on, on earth, simultaneously and without time lapse. Think about that. So he says... You're the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So I know man's going to sin. I don't want him to sin, but I know he will because I know the nature of a of, of finite man. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to have a provision before man has a problem. Illustr- another illustration. So God says uh, he kind of gets sick of the whole idea of man because wickedness is on the face of the earth, right? Chapter 6, Genesis. And he says, you know what? I, 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 there's just nothing I can do with them. There's only eight righteous people on the earth, so I'm going to wipe everybody out. So he tells, Ad, uh, t- he tells Noah to get... Uh, to build this ark, and it's going to rain, and I want you to put on the ark, I want you to put animals in what? How does he tell them? In, in what? Two by two, right? Two by two. But if that's all you think's there, you miss the main point. Because those are the unclean animals are two by two. The clean animals are seven by seven. So he had two unclean animals because they're going to reproduce, not going to be a problem, but he had seven clean animals because the first time, the first thing that Noah does when he gets off the ark is does what? He builds an altar. And on the altar, he sacrifices what? Clean or unclean? Clean. You see, God gave him a provision of extra clean animals so he could take care of the sacrifice because God is always the provider of what we need before we have a problem. Pretty cool, huh? Noah didn't even have a clue. He didn't know what was going on. He didn't, I mean, you can only imagine what's going through this guy's head, right? But now he's got seven you know, dove, he's got seven lambs. What is going on in, this, in this, this plan of God? And all of a sudden, it becomes clear now. So let's take it to another one, Genesis chapter 22. Abraham has been waiting for a son. He's finally born. Isaac's a young man. And God says, you know, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son. I want you to take him up on Mount Moriah. I want you to offer him up as a sacrifice. Now, can you imagine that? Is that about as crazy as anything could ever get? Now, there may be times when you wanted to take your son up and do that, but, but that's, not, that's not what we're trying to, to, to establish here, right? Okay, so he takes him up, and now watch this. Watch what happens. He takes him up, and the, the servants, he's got two servants with him, 
And he comes to a point where he says to those two servants, you wait here. I and the lad are going to go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So what does Moses do? I mean, Abraham do. He takes the wood and he puts it on the shoulders of his son. A picture of Jesus putting the cross on his shoulders. He goes up on Mount Moriah. By the way, you know where Mount Moriah is? Jerusalem. He goes up on Mount Moriah, the same mountain that Jesus would one day climb. Same mountain. With the wood on his shoulders. And as he goes up this, Abraham has the fire and the knife in his hand. I mean, he's going through this thing. It's got a burnt offering. You know why that's important? A burnt offering was for sin. This was a picture of a sin offering. This was not not a wave offering. This was not one of the other offerings here. This was a sin offering. Because the principle that, that God wanted to show us was a little glimpse of what it meant for God to, to take possession and make Abraham the king of the earth. That's what he promised was, wasn't it? You're going to be the father of what? Of the nations. You're going to have a unique role with Israel, but you're going to be the father of many nations. In other words, you're going to, you're going to have dominion. You're going, to, you're going to rule here in a big way, Abram. And I, you have to understand the only way that's really going to work is through death. We've got to deal with sin. So he's taking up, I believe Abraham had every, every, every intention of killing him. I mean, I really do, as crazy as it seems. He takes him up there. He, he ties him down. And he said, my father, or he gets ready to time, and he says, my father, uh, uh, the knife and the fire and the altar, but where's the lamb? You know, he's, still, he's a smart guy. Isaac's a smart kid. He's going, you know what? We're missing something here. I'm thinking maybe we ought to go look for a lamb. And Abram responds this way. God will provide himself as a sacrifice. God will provide himself. Think about how revelatory that was. He didn't say God will provide a sacrifice. He said God will provide himself a sacrifice. He ties him down. He lifts his knife up, getting ready to kill old Isaac, who's going, this is the worst dad in the neighborhood. <laughs> Amen? I mean, Father's Day card, forget it. He lifts it. He gets ready to plunge this into his son. And all of a sudden, he hears this voice from heaven says, Abram, Abram, do not take your son, your only son. Um, you know, basically, now I know that you, you trust me. I know that you believe. Now, when you go to the Hebrews account of that, it says that, that Abraham believed that God could even raise the dead. He confessed that. I and the son are going to go yonder, and what are we going to do? We're going to return to you. We're going to return to you. So he believed in the resurrection. He believed it was going to happen. He was going to go through it. So it says here, and Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. They get up there, the angel of the Lord, verse 11, calls, says, Abraham, Abraham, here am I. Do not lay a hand on your lad or do anything to him now that I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Abraham lifted his eyes and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. So Abraham took the ram, offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Now, you know what that is? That's a substitute. 
You know what we believe about Christ? That it was the substitute. He took the place for us. He died for our sins because we weren't qualified to die. In fact, when you're reading theology, you'll read something that says like the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Okay, he took the place. He took the place. Now watch this. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide, the Lord will provide. All right. Here is, you know, Jehovah God providing in this place for him, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. What happened? The principle, before you have a problem, I have a provision. If you will write that in the front of your Bible, it will do you much service. Because every time you have a problem, what do you say? What am I going to do? Don't you? What am I going to do? You call your friends. What am I going to do? You start praying. God, what am I going to do? If you remember this principle, God has a provision before you have a problem. I don't care what the problem is. God has an answer. You may not know it because you know what? The answers of God don't lie on the surface of the ground. It is given to kings to search out a matter, Proverbs says. God only saves his best nuggets for those who are willing to dig and look for them. Gold isn't on the surface. You don't just walk down the road, dang, look at this, I just found a gold mine. Diamonds aren't laying around, except at a jewelry store, but you're not supposed to take those, right? Oil, you got to what? You got to go deep. Water, you got to go deep. You got to you know, see these things, you got to look for them. You've got to find them. And God is always going to make this provision. Okay, so now let's go back to 1 Corinthians. And by the way, think about, think about how, how forward thinking this is for God to give this to Abraham, this provision of the coming Jesus. The coming Jesus. It would be later that David would buy this land. King David would buy this land and put the temple there. And when God brought this plague and he goes to this guy that owns the land and he says, you know, um, the plague stopped and he says, you know, I want to buy the land. The guy says, uh, no, I'll just give it to you. You're the king. David says this, I will not take, I will not give unto the Lord that which costs me nothing. He pays for it. He builds the temple there. Son Solomon would build the temple on the same place that Abraham offered his son, and on that site, thousands and thousands and thousands of lambs would be sacrificed according to the Old Testament law until one day the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world would die once and for all for you and for me, and he would establish the right, the authority on earth for you and I to have dominion. And his last words to us in Matthew chapter 28 was, Go therefore into all the world. All power, all authority has been given unto me. You go now in my stead. Crazy, huh? And God put all that together for us. It's just right there. I can jump from... You know, from Genesis, and I can go over here into the life of David. I can go over here in, in, in the book of Matthew. I can see all that, how God put this together. So now let's go. <clears throat> go back to 1 Corinthians 2. This is how we got into this. He said, all right. He says that uh, in verse 4, My speech and my preaching were not in persuasive words of human wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So you didn't listen to me because I had good words. There was something God was doing something in my life, and you said, you know what? Something's going on here. And the Spirit of God began to connect with your spirit, 
Now, he says the reason it works that way, the reason it works that way in verse 4 is, verse 5, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You never want to have, you never want to have faith in man. Why not? Let's think of some reasons. Why not? Why not faith in man? They'll always let you down. Why else? Temporary. It doesn't do much good, really, if you stop and think about it, right? Huh? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're fallible. We're just all the same. And every time, you know, like you go to Revelation, you see John falling down to worship somebody, and he, he gets in front of the wrong guy, and he goes, yeah, hey, I'm just a servant like you. Get up. You know, we got to look over here. I'm going to point you to Jesus. Okay? So let's go on. Verse 6. However, when we speak of wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are what? Coming to nothing. Who are the rulers of this age? He's ta- who's he talking about? Yeah, he's talking about Satan and his demons, right? They're the rulers of this age. The political rulers are just, they're puppets behind the whole system, really. They just think they're in charge. But he says, what's happening? They're coming to nothing. They will no longer exist. They will no longer have power anymore, which some of the rulers of this age knew, okay? Some of them knew that. But now, now he's talking about earthly rulers here. But had they known, they would have not have crucified the Lord of glory. So both political and, and, and demonic knew this. But go back to verse 7. Why did God ordain all this wisdom? Look in verse 7. He ordained it before the ages for what? Just read it. What's it say? For glory or for what? For our glory. Do you realize that Jesus died on the cross so you could get glory? What's your glory? Dominion, authority to rule and to reign with him now and in all eternity. See, God wants to give you glory. It's just scripture. I mean, I'm just reading it. You know, I don't have to be real smart here. Now look what it says here. And they had known, had they known that, they would have not have crucified the Lord of what? Glory. They have not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye has not seen nor ear heard or nor have entered into the heart of man the things that, is, that God has prepared for those who love him. Okay, so here's what he says to do. I want you to look at everything you see. And he says, that's not enough. God has more. I want you to think about everything you've ever heard that would be fantastic. And he says, that's not enough. I want you to think about everything that has entered into your heart. Every great vision and dream you've ever had. He said, that's not enough. God, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us, look at this, through his spirit. There are some things you can only see in the spiritual realm. You can't see them anywhere else. There's sometimes when you enter into the spiritual realm, God will show you stuff that's so special and so sacred, you need to keep it to yourself. It's not for public consumption. The reason it's not for public consumption is because God is speaking to you. Because somebody else may not understand it, they may get confused for it, or they may even get jealous about it. You have to know what you can release. But he's going to reveal it in the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. So what does the Holy Spirit do? Okay, watch this. God, I want to know some deep truths. The Spirit of God says, do you really? Do you really want to know some deep truths? If you do, I can show it to you. It's going to be a price you're going to pay. But here's, here we go. 
Holy Spirit goes out, what does he do? He starts plumbing the depths of God's truths. Huh, I wonder what would be good for this person. What's good for you is not good for you. What's good for you is not good for you. God has something unique for you. He begins to go on this exploration. He says, let me just search out the deep things of God. I think I've got exactly what you need. And he says, here you go. Now, if you don't want the deep things of God, God's fine. Because he, he needs initiators in the kingdom. He needs warriors in the kingdom. He needs people who are in training to be kings and queens. He does, he's not going to give deep truths to people who still think they're slaves. Or like they used to say, you know, I'm just an old sinner saved by grace. That's the stupidest, most unbiblical comment a person could ever make. I used to hear it all the time in the South. I mean, I think they even have songs about it. You know, an old sinner saved by grace, you know. My favorite one was that, uh, that one, Drop Kick Me Jesus Through the Goalposts of Life. Have you heard that one? End over end, I'm on the winning side. Anyway, <laughs> I mean, you know, there's just something about Southern gospel songs that's just funny. Okay, but God says, okay, I'm going to search out the deep things of God. Now look at this, verse 11. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit uh, of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. In other words, no man, I don't care how smart he is, can know the things of God apart from the Spirit of God. Once you get into the Spirit of God, let me illustrate like this. Anybody ever been to New York City? Anybody here? Just raise your hand. Been to New York City. Any of you ever been to the Empire State Building? Let's just use that one, right? Okay, here's what I want you, here's, here's what the deep things of God are like. You walk into the ground floor of the Empire State Building and you go, wow, this is pretty cool. You know, got the elevator. It's kind of old, that old Gothic kind of looking stuff. And yeah, this is neat. And then they've got a little guy there that pushes the button for you, a little, you know, hop on. There's a guy there with, hey, come on in. And so imagine this. Now you go up to the first floor. You get up on the first floor and instead of seeing a bunch of offices like are actually there, what you see is you see one mirror on every wall. Not a large mirror, one mirror on every wall. And you walk in and you go, well, how big is this place? And you, you kind of try to get perspective and you kind of figure out what's going on here. Oh, that's reflecting over there. And if I stand here, I can, okay, well, that's unusual. But, but you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. And so you think, I'm going to go to the next floor. So you push the elevator, you go up to the third floor. And you get up there. Now, instead of four mirrors, there's six mirrors. Okay. Then you go up to the last floor before the observation deck and every square inch are mirrors set at every different angle, and the place is filled with smoke. And you're so disoriented in this world because you're not used to it. This is not the world you exist. You understand first floor, second floor you can kind of figure out, third floor you kind of figure out, but God is now taking you into a realm that is beyond your understanding. But once you learn how to conquer that floor, God takes you out on the observation deck. And now he gives you a divine perspective. You walk out and you begin to look all the way across into the ocean, up into the Hudson. You see over the East River, you see all these skyscrapers and you begin to get a perspective from God. You get to go to any floor you want, but you can't skip floors. You can't go from floor three to four or or, or four to five. I mean, from four to five you can go. You can't go from four to eight. How much do you want to know about God? How deep do you want to go with God? Every level gives you a new level of responsibility. 
every level you begin to get acclimated to that floor and you begin to see things the way God wants you to see things. And then you begin to understand God in a deeper way. It's only revealed by the Spirit of God. Hopefully that illustration, it makes it complex enough and yet ties it in. Now, verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us. You can actually know this stuff. These things which we also speak, not in which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. So what's my primary understanding? I have to understand, I have to compare this spiritual thing with this spiritual thing in order to take me to the new level. Okay? Now, one more illustration if I can. I want you to draw this diagram. It's just concentric circles. Okay? And in, um, in the center circle right here, I want you to just write, says, what the Bible actually says. Okay? We can all agree that the Bible says something, right? Okay. Now, it gets more complex from there, though, right? Because now what we have to do is we have to go to this next level called interpretation. Sorry, I don't write very good on sideways. Now we have to say we have to interpret what the Bible says. Okay? Then we go from that one, we get out here to deduction. And we can compare spiritual things with spiritual things. And then as we start to move out here, we say, well, we've got this experience that we had. We want to measure that against what the Bible actually says. And then if we keep going out here, we get into really the goofy stuff like tradition, religion, and everything else. The further we get away from this, the further we get away from truly understanding what God has said. Amen? So what do we always have to do? We always have to drive back to the Word of God. You have to get back, what does the Bible say? And then we test everything by what the Bible says. For example, I can remember a time when I was taught that all the spiritual gifts had died with the apostles. Okay? There weren't any valid today. We didn't need it because the, the Bible. If you're a follower of John MacArthur, that's John MacArthur's position. Once the Bible came in, they didn't, you didn't need any spiritual gifts in terms of the sign gifts. You know, whereas nobody could speak in tongues, nobody could raise the dead, nobody could heal, nobody could do any of that stuff. That was past. And he spent years trying to invalidate that whole principle. So what did I do? I'm a young guy. I'm kind of, I listen to this guy. This guy's a pretty smart guy. He's, got, he's a good Bible teacher. I give him that. He really, really is. But he, he took from me, he took from me a principle of the miraculous. He took from me something that when I go back now, I go, what he said didn't even make sense. And I'm not trying to be critical of him. I'm just trying to say his perspective of he went from here into deduction or interpretation and because I haven't experienced it and because my tra- tradition doesn't affirm it, it therefore must be invalid. Then all of a sudden, somebody gets healed. What do I do with this guy? Then you go into some, you know, some place where, you know, somebody gets up and they, and they, they start preaching in Italian, which I, hap- I saw happen. Never studied Italian in his life. Preached and gave the gospel and some bunch of Italians got saved. Like, I didn't know you knew Italian. He said, what are you talking about? He said, you just spoke Italian. 
what do I do with that guy? I'm sorry, that doesn't count because it doesn't fit in my tradition or my experience. I think you've heard me tell you the story about that anointing that came on me. I can't find that in Scripture. I can't find that exact experience. But I, I can't. But if I, if I understand that God does the miraculous, now it all makes sense. I don't have to try to find the exact experience. And I think Jesus did that for a reason. You know, if you think about it, think about how he healed people. It's almost like no two people got healed exactly the same way. You know why? He doesn't want you to reduce it to a method. He wants you to move it back to a man, the Lord Jesus. I mean, imagine if you said, blind guy comes forward, you say, hey, I know exactly what to do. Spit a little in my hand, get a little dirt, stir it up, stick it in your eyes. I think you're going to be fine. Well, we go, wait a minute, that, that's not a good method. God does not want you to reduce him to formulas. One more illustration. I'm gonna I'm gonna quit. Try to get you out here before nine if I can't, which I can. So they they have this Ark of the Covenant. Remember the Ark of the Covenant, okay? In the Ark of the Covenant, you've got the Ten Commandments. You know, you've got the ashes of the red heifer, all that kind of stuff. The top of it was the mercy seat, and they would and then they had these big. You know, if you saw Indiana Jones, that's kind of the the whole thing. They had these angels with outstretched wings, and they the priest would offer would put sprinkled blood on it seven times. And that was on the Day of Atonement, and it was a, a picture of the cleansing of sin of the people. And the idea was when God saw the blood, he didn't see the law. Ten commandments were in the, in the mercy seat, in the, in the Ark of the Covenant. And so when he saw it, then it was, the blood took care of the problem. That's why First John says Jesus is our propitiation for sin. You ever heard that word, propitiation? You go, what the heck is that? You know what it literally means? Mercy seat. Jesus is our mercy seat. Okay? And so, so we, we go back to this thing. We see that God has this plan of doing something. So, so what happens? Israel gets enamored with the Ark of the Covenant. And they say, we got the Ark of the Covenant. There's even one place where they sing the Ark of the Covenant to their enemies. Ark of the Covenant, Ark of the Covenant. You know, we're safe. Ha, ha, ha. Na, na, na. You can't get us. God won't let the Ark of the Covenant go. And God says, you know what? I don't really care about the Ark of the Covenant anymore. Because you guys have so blown it with the Ark of the Covenant concept, you've begun to worship the Ark instead of me. So he lets it go into the, into the hands of the enemies, right? And they go, what happened? I can't believe this happened to me. And, of course, it just became bad news for the enemies, if you remember that. They got it, you know, and they didn't know what to do with it, and all of a sudden they all get hemorrhoids. I love that section in Scripture, right? And so they think it must be the hemorrhoid God, and so they, what do they do? They go out and they make golden hemorrhoids. They got the golden hemorrhoids up there. Well, it must be the hemorrhoid God, you know, so let's just do that. It's just bad news. They just want to get this thing out of Dodge altogether. Okay, now watch. Here's the principle. Here's what I wanted to try to go to. Everybody's going to look this up now. Newer translations, they use tumors, but we know what it really was. Um, You know, they're saying their God is a pain in the butt. That's really what they were saying. Okay. (laughs) All right. So, So what happens here? What happens here? The ark, write this down, write this down. The ark was a symbol of his presence. The ark was a symbol of his presence, but not the prison of his essence. The ark was a symbol of his presence, but it was not a prison of his essence. You could not capture God in the ark. 
That's why we read scriptures like God says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. How will you contain me? God doesn't want to be cornered by your theology. He doesn't want you to reduce him to formulas and religious rites, methods. He just wants to be God. He wants to be your everything. And he wants you to know that you, watch this now, you are his everything. You are his everything. You are the crown jewel of what he did. He sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for you. Doesn't that make you feel special? When we forget, when the cross becomes too common to us, we forget that principle, and then we become open to the attack of the enemy. Who am I? I have to know my identity in Jesus Christ. Amen? Yeah, I think that's I think that's good. Let me let me ask you this. Is it simple in heaven right now? Is it simple in heaven right now? No, it's not simple. It is being assailed by demonic spirits night and day. Angels are warring all the time. There's a battle raging right now. You know, we get the idea, you know, we're bailing out of here so we can lay on easy street. You know, there's a battle right now happening all in that in the heavenly places, right? That's why, you know, you go to Job. He says, where you been, Job? I've been going to and fro across the earth here to, you know, to basically see who I can devour. Right? So what happens? I mean, there comes a point at which after the millennium, after the great white throne judgment, you know, Satan and his demons are, are put aside and they're in the bottomless pit and they're sealed up and things are in pretty good shape. You know, 
But until that time, I mean, there's conflict right now in the spiritual wor- worlds, right? It's conflict. Now, it's not a dualism. It's not like, gee, I hope God pulls this one off. Okay? He uses everything in your life that's difficult to teach you how to be an overcomer. Everything. He puts you in situations of conflict to teach you how to be an overcomer. Remember, people are critical of me. People don't like me. Life's difficult. Well, let's go back to the life of Jesus. Even God has his critics. Jesus was accused of being a wine-bibber, being demon-possessed, and keeping company with thieves. How's that for your reputation? Overcome. First thing he does, he gets baptized, and what does he do? It says the Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness to what? Be tempted by the devil. That doesn't look like a good strategy to me. I think a good strategy is nice baptismal service. You know, maybe we'll have some grapes down at the home and celebrate what just happened. First thing he does, he plunges him into spiritual warfare. That's why the Lord's Prayer has so much meaning. And lead us not into temptation. In other words, he's saying, you don't want to go through what I went through, so pray that you don't. But deliver us from the evil one. See, that Lord's Prayer is all built around the temptation. You put those two side by side and it makes complete sense. Give us this day our daily bread. Turn these stones into bread and, and, and then I'll know you're the Son of God. Just put them parallel. If you've never done that, put them parallel, read them and go, O-M-G. I just saw something in God's eternal kingdom I never saw before. They are, they are, they are brothers of one another, those two things. Amen? All right, let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, thanks for tonight. Thank you for every person here, for the insights you've given us. And we know those insights uh, don't come from man. They come from the Spirit of God. You use the thoughts of man. You, you, you stimulate us to drive in deeper into the spiritual realm so that we can know the deep things of God. God, we want to get in the Empire State Building, so to speak, and we want to go to the next level. And we know it requires a hunger on our part. So keep us hungry, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Hey, God bless you guys. Have a great day, huh? Great night, great week.